Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. If you have read the graphic novel Watchmen, or if you've seen the 2009 film adaptation. I don't think this was in the TV show. Uh, or if you've been on, like, the memeier parts of the internet over the last few years, you might be familiar with the one about the man who goes to the doctor looking for help with his depression, and the doctor says something like, the great clown Pagliacci is in town tonight. Go see him, and he'll make you feel all better. And the man says, but doctor, I am Pagliacci. Uh, Pagliacci is Italian for clowns. Probably pronouncing it not the greatest. I totally have Enrico Caruso in my head now. Yeah. Um, so that name and the punchline probably goes all the way back to the 18-teens. But this same joke has also circulated with the names of other real comedians and clowns. And one, going back to at least 1887 in this joke format, is Grimaldi. The doctor wants him to go see Grimaldi to make him all better. But doctor, I am Grimaldi. That's Joseph Grimaldi. He was one of England's most famous Regency-era entertainers. Sometimes he is described as the first modern clown because he established a lot of the hallmarks of clowning that still exist today, specifically in terms of the whiteface clown. Joseph Grimaldi, known as Joe, was born into a family of entertainers, dancers, and acrobats who were originally from Italy. His great-grandfather had a background in the Italian theatrical form of Commedia dell'arte. His grandfather, Giovanni Battista, or John Baptist Grimaldi, was nicknamed Gamba di Ferro, or Iron Legs, and also worked as a dentist when he was not on stage. I, 
also find that funny. So um, it's it's unintentionally hilarious. John Baptiste apparently left the British stage in a criminal flourish, convincing the manager of the Covent Garden Theater that he was putting together an incredible new show, one that was totally unique and would feature dancers wearing horseshoes. But he vanished, along with an advance on his pay, before taking the stage on opening night. Joe's father, Giuseppe Grimaldi, was also kind of a piece of work. He was a dancer and pantomimist known for grotesque humor and practical jokes, and he had affairs with a lot of women, some of whom were his apprentices. He had children with at least two women in addition to his wife, Mary Blagden. One of those women was Joe's mother, Rebecca Brooker, who was a dancer who had started as Giuseppe's apprentice when she was still a teenager, Rebecca gave birth to Joseph on December 18, 1778, and then had another son with Giuseppe named John Baptist. In addition to his many extramarital affairs, Giuseppe Grimaldi had a reputation for being a tyrant, both with his theatrical companies and with his family. People called him the Signor, and in his work as a ballet master, he was known for beating and otherwise tormenting his dancers, some of whom were his children. At times, he also displayed a range of irrational beliefs and behaviors. He seems to have maybe also used the Iron Legs name, which has made it really hard to figure out which things are about him and which things are about his father. Right. Joe Grimaldi's autobiography, which was edited by Charles Dickens, says almost nothing about this side of his father, and it's not clear whether this was out of a sense of loyalty or because it just wouldn't have been seen as appropriate for him to be speaking ill of his father in, like, a tell-all memoir. But there are some hints of what Giuseppe Grimaldi was like in this book. For example, quote, We have already remarked that the father of Grimaldi was an eccentric man. He appears to have been particularly eccentric and rather unpleasantly so in the correction of his son. The child being bred up to play all kinds of fantastic tricks was as much a clown, a monkey, or anything else that was droll and ridiculous off the stage as on it. And being incited thereto by the occupants of the green room used to skip and tumble about as much for their diversion as that of the public. All this was carefully concealed from the father, who, whenever he did happen to observe any of the child's pranks, always administered the same punishment, a sound thrashing, terminating in his being lifted up by the hair of the head and stuck in a corner, whence his father, with a severe countenance and awful voice, would tell him to venture to move at his peril. Most theatrical productions in England during this era were pantomime, which was a hugely popular form of entertainment that could also be seen as kind of lowbrow. This wasn't necessarily entirely silent. There might be songs or catchphrases or bits of verse here and there. While there were theaters which performed plays with actual dialogue, these were subject to government censorship, whereas pantomime was not. Pantomimists also were not regarded as real actors capable of doing scenes with dialogue. So if you're imagining something like French mime artist Marcel Marceau when we say the word pantomime, this wasn't really that either. British pantomime has roots in Italian commedia dell'arte, and it started to become really popular as a form of entertainment during the Georgian era. 
Pantomime was particularly popular for Christmas time productions, but eventually there were multiple theaters with overlapping seasons that were essentially performing pantomime year round. I feel like in a lot of uh, literature from this era, too, you'll see descriptions of like families doing pantomimes for each other as entertainment. Like, mm-hmm. that's my first exposure to this concept. The first part of the performance was often a rendition of a fairy tale or a fantasy or some other kind of well-known story. Then would come the Harlequinade, which, like Commedia dell'arte, used a collection of stock characters that were recognizable to the audience. Harlequin and Columbine were usually the heroes and were devotedly in love with each other, and their antagonist, Pantaloon, schemed to keep them apart. Pantaloon might be Columbine's tyrannical father or a malicious rival for Columbine's affections. Pantaloon often had some kind of servant or sidekick who could be known by any number of names and sometimes was just called Clown. Part of this production usually took place with the performers wearing these oversized papier-mâché heads or masks, which would then be removed at a transitional point in the performance. The action often included a lot of physical comedy and slapstick, including literal slapsticks that were primed with gunpowder, so they made a very sharp cracking noise when they were struck as part of the action. These were often really high-energy productions with a lot of acrobatics, dancing, music, and various other spectacles. Giuseppe trained Joe and John Baptist to be performers in this world from a very early age. Joe took the stage for the first time on April 16, 1781, for what his father described as his first bow and tumble. He was not yet three years old. Soon, he was working as a child dancer in pantomime productions. This could actually be dangerous. Sometimes he played the role of a monkey, with his father holding a chain tied to his waist, and sometimes flinging him around by that chain. In one performance, the chain broke and Joe was thrown into the audience. When he was six, Joe fell through a trap door and broke his collarbone because no one had cut eye holes in his mask. By coincidence, this happened during his father's last public performance. He became ill that night and Giuseppe never returned to the stage. While still a child, Joe Grimaldi started working at two London theaters, Drury Lane and Sadler's Wells, both of which were established in the 17th century. Both theaters performed some similar material, but Drury Lane catered to a somewhat more affluent audience than Sadler's Wells did. The Drury Lane season went from September to late spring, and then Sadler's Wells ran from mid-April to mid-October. So during the weeks when these two seasons overlapped, Joe often performed at both theaters in one night, either taking a hackney coach or running from one to the other. He also went to school for a time at a boarding school in Putney called Mr. Ford's Academy, which was for performers' children. In 1788, Joe's father died. We also mentioned that Giuseppe could be irrational. For years, he had been so preoccupied over the idea that he was going to die on the first Friday of the month that he spent each first Friday locked alone in a room staring at the clock. He was also terrified of being buried alive and left instructions to prevent that from happening, including waiting 48 hours to bury him after his death and applying lit candles to his feet. His will also specified that his oldest daughter, Mary, had to cut off his head before he was buried. She paid a surgeon to do this and put her hand on the knife so that she could say that she had fulfilled this order and had done it. 
Giuseppe's death left Joe, who was only nine years old, as the family's primary breadwinner. So this was a terrible responsibility for a little boy. And then to make things worse, without the looming influence of his father, who a lot of people were scared of, theater managers he worked for cut his pay. Since Joe was making less money, and they also no longer had any income from Giuseppe, the family couldn't afford to live in their home anymore. They started lodging with a furrier in an area that was described as a slum. While Giuseppe had been paving the way for both of his sons to follow him on stage, Joe's brother, John Baptist, decided to go in his own direction. At the age of eight, he used a false identity to get a job as a cabin boy on a ship, and he disappeared from his family's life for the next 16 years. We'll have more about this after a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands in over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. 
for the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Joe Grimaldi spent most of his childhood and teens working, gradually being cast in bigger and better roles and learning set design while he was on the job. In 1791, the Drury Lane Theater was demolished, and Grimaldi did most of his performing at the Haymarket Theater instead. When Drury Lane reopened three years later, it was the largest theater in Europe, but it stopped doing Christmas pantomimes in 1798, which meant Grimaldi had to find other work than what he was usually doing during those months. He also started expanding his skills as a performer, including doing more swordplay and acrobatics. When he was about 17, Grimaldi met Maria Hughes, daughter of Richard Hughes, who was one of the proprietors of the Sadler's Wells Theater. Maria had become friends with Joe's mother, Rebecca, who was a dancer at the theater and also spent a lot of time sewing in the dressing rooms. After a three-year courtship, Joe and Maria got married on May 11, 1799. It's probably possible that she said this, Mariah because a lot of folks back then did, but we don't really know. As Grimaldi had progressed in his career, he'd gotten his share of detractors. Some of this was because of his father's reputation, and some was because of the trajectory of his own work. Joe also didn't get along with Jean-Baptiste Dubois, who was a very prominent pantomime performer and had taken on some of Giuseppe Grimaldi's roles after his death. Joe had spent some time working with Dubois, and a lot of people thought that Joe had learned all of his techniques from the older performer. That's something Joe seems to have resented and continually denied. The day after Richard Hughes gave his permission for his daughter Rebecca to marry Joe, somebody came to the theater to warn him that Joe Grimaldi had designs on her. Almost 20 years into his career, Grimaldi made his stage debut in the role of clown in the spring of 1800. This was in a production of Peter Wilkins or Harlequin in the Flying World, adapted from Life and Adventures of Peter Wilkins by Robert Paltock. This is a story about a Cornish castaway who winds up on an island where people can fly. This staging had two actors in each of the Harlequinade roles. The two clowns were Joe Grimaldi and his rival, Jean-Baptiste Dubois, as Guzzle the Drinking Clown and Gobble the Eating Clown. On stage, they had something of a competition to see who could drink the most beer or eat the most sausages. While Grimaldi had occasionally performed clown roles as an understudy or a stand-in before this, this was the first time that he had actually been cast in the role of clown. And this production made some departures from the way clown had been portrayed. Stretching back to the beginning of British pantomime, clown had usually been kind of an unsophisticated bumpkin with ruddy makeup and rustic baggy clothes. But theater manager Charles Dibden wanted to change things up. 
Grimaldi and Dubois were both in dramatically colorful, flamboyant costumes, and Grimaldi had gone to great lengths to completely change the style of his makeup. He, like, tinkered with this a lot and revised it over time. All the exposed skin on his face and neck were totally covered in white grease paint, and he had a big, bright red smile and a curving red triangle on each cheek, He also exaggerated his eyebrows and made his hair really big and bushy. So basically, it was the white face clown makeup that still exists today. There was a near disaster during this performance when Dibden realized a trapdoor was open on stage and fell through it while rushing out to close it. But otherwise, it was an enormous success, particularly for Joe. He seemed to embody the idea of clown. He and Dubois continued to be cast together after this, sometimes playing off each other as rivals, including Harlequin Benedict or the ghost of Mother Shipton. Sadly, Grimaldi's life took a tragic turn just a few months later. His wife Maria died giving birth to their daughter on October 18, 1800, and the baby died as well. Joe had been at rehearsal when Maria went into labor, and although somebody was sent to get him, she had died by the time he got home. Maria's pregnancy had been difficult, and deaths during childbirth at this time were just extremely common. She had actually left burial instructions and a poem to be inscribed on her headstone. Her last words were reportedly, Poor Joe. Joe was devastated. Although he threw himself into his work to distract himself from his grief, he was also prone to disappearing, sometimes for days at a time, and people would find him wandering inconsolably. During this time, he accidentally shot himself in the foot during a performance and had to recuperate in bed for five weeks. His mother was so concerned about his well-being that she hired Mary Bristow, who was in the chorus at Drury Lane, to look after him while he recovered from this injury. They wound up falling in love, and they got married in 1802. They had a son on November 21st of that year who they named Joseph Samuel William Grimaldi. They called him J.S., By 1802, Jean-Baptiste Dubois had left Sadler's Wells Theater, and Grimaldi was being called King of Clowns. Grimaldi had really established all of the hallmarks of his signature clown character, with its slap and motley or grease paint makeup and party-colored costume. He became so associated with the idea of clown that soon all Harlequinade clowns were being called Joey. He also had a couple of catchphrases. Here we are again, and shall I? Which he said with a mischievous or even sinister intonation. I've obviously never seen one of his performances, but I can just imagine this clown in like white face clown makeup going, shall I? (laughs) Uh, This was not always what he wore, though. Another stock character in British pantomime was the so-called Noble Savage, who was usually a Black or Indigenous character played by a white actor. Grimaldi's blackface performances included Friday in Robinson Crusoe and Canto in La Perouse, or The Desolate Island. In 1802, Grimaldi also joined the Drury Lane Theatrical Fund, which actors could pay into in order to receive a pension when they retired. He was only able to do this thanks to having done a number of small speaking roles over the years, because this was not open to people who only did pantomime. In 1803, England declared war on France as the start of the Napoleonic Wars, 
Although there have been periods when war just put an end to theatrical productions, in this case, theater became even more popular as a relief from the stresses of wartime. Not long after, Joe Grimaldi very briefly reunited with his brother, John Baptist, after 16 years. John showed up by surprise at the theater one night, but then disappeared when Joe went into his dressing room to get ready. Joe looked for his brother for about a month, and it is really not clear what happened to him. By this point, most people in their lives had thought that John was dead, so people wondered if Joe had hallucinated the entire thing. During these same years, Grimaldi moved around a bit as a performer as Sadler's Wells closed down for refurbishment, and he also had a falling out with management at Drury Lane. He started performing at theaters outside of London, including going to Ireland. Then in 1806, he made his debut at Covent Garden Theater, which was seen as one of the most prestigious theaters in England. He was cast as Orson the Wild Man in Valentine and Orson, a role that had previously been associated with his old sort of nemesis, Jean-Baptiste Dubois. The role of Valentine was played by Charles Farley, who had also played Valentine opposite Dubois. Farley knew that Grimaldi would be apprehensive about stepping into Dubois's shoes in this role, given their history, but he also thought Grimaldi had the potential to turn it into something really incredible. And he did. In this play, Valentine meets a wild man while he's out hunting for meat and attacks him, and then the wild man fights back in just an astoundingly vigorous series of leaps. He's also throwing rocks and swinging a club. This role involved so much just explosive physicality, and Grimaldi played it with such intensity that he was continually pushing his own limits, and he repeatedly hurt himself. People described him sobbing in a small room backstage in between his onstage performances. Grimaldi's best-known performance started in 1806 with Harlequin and Mother Goose, or The Golden Egg. This was a Christmas pantomime by Thomas Dibden that ran for 96 performances, and it was extremely successful and well-reviewed. In 1807, the Monthly Mirror wrote, quote, Grimaldi is the principal cause of crowded lobbies and scarcely standing room. Many of our second- and third-rate tragedians would give their ears to meet with half the plaudits which are every night conferred on Grimaldi for his inimitable exertions. His clown has not been equaled. We never expect to see it surpassed. He has arrived at an acme of all clownery. But Grimaldi apparently hated his own performance in Mother Goose and experienced a lot of depression and self-doubt about it. A series of disasters struck the London theater world around this time. On October 15, 1807, 18 people died in a stampede at Sadler's Wells, apparently after somebody yelled, fight, and people mistook it for someone shouting, fire. Grimaldi had performed earlier in the night and had already gone home. Sadler's Wells had to close for the season, and since alcohol had played a part in this panic, it was allowed to reopen the following year only under the condition that it no longer sell wine. On September 20th, 1808, the Covent Garden Theater caught fire, possibly due to a spark from a stage firearm that had smoldered in a wall without anyone noticing. 23 people died, including several firefighters who were killed when the ceiling collapsed. The theater and all of its contents and scenery were destroyed, including an organ belonging to George Frederick Handel. 
And then on February 24, 1809, the Drury Lane Theater also burned. There was no performance that night, and the fire was believed to have spread from a fireplace in an unattended room. These theaters did eventually reopen, which we'll get to after a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. 
When the Covent Garden Theater reopened in 1809, it staged a revival of its previously successful Mother Goose, but it also raised its prices to help cover the cost of rebuilding. This price hike did not go over well. It led to more than two months of fighting and rioting as audiences called for OP, or old prices. As each of the theaters rebuilt and reopened, they increasingly competed with one another and tried out new styles of productions. Grimaldi's performances started to become more satirical. He was nicknamed Hogarth in Action. He also started performing a lot more songs, many of them written by Thomas Dibden and featuring nonsensical lyrics. And he was famous and became friends with people like George Gordon, Lord Byron. In Byron's words, he had, quote, great and unbounded satisfaction in becoming acquainted with a man of such rare and profound talents. Byron left England in the late 18-teens, though, and that left a hole in Grimaldi's offstage life. Grimaldi was also really starting to struggle, both physically and financially. His clown performances were just so athletic and vigorous, and beyond the ongoing demands on his body, he experienced a number of injuries. As one newspaper described it in 1813, quote, it is absolutely surprising that any human head or hide can resist the rough trials which he volunteers. Serious tumbles from serious heights, innumerable kicks and incessant beatings come on him as matters of common occurrence and leave him every night fresh and free for the next night's flagellation. Over time, he did start taking some parts that leaned more toward acting than clowning. But while he was still working steadily, including in some well-paying roles, his wife Mary seems to have had some really expensive tastes, and he also lost some money to unscrupulous managers. In 1812, he almost went bankrupt. Although Grimaldi had been performing at multiple venues for most of his career, sometimes simultaneously, this seems to have become an issue for some of the theater managers in the 18-teens. He fell out with longtime collaborator Charles Dibden after Dibden denied his request for time off to perform at another venue. Grimaldi had also become chief judge and treasurer of the Sadler's Wells Court of Rectitude, which enforced the theater's code of conduct for its performers. Apparently, Dibden thought Grimaldi was way too lenient in this role. This all came to a head with a salary dispute in 1816, and Grimaldi left the theater and went on tour. About two years later, Richard Hughes' widow, Lucy, who had become majority shareholder in the theater after Richard's death, convinced Grimaldi to return. And Grimaldi actually bought a small stake in the theater as part of that deal. This was after he had finished a tour of Scotland, Manchester, and Liverpool, during which he had repeatedly been injured, including one injury that temporarily left him unable to walk. His first appearance back at Sadler's Wells was not a success, though. He played Grimaldicat in an Easter pantomime called Marquis de Carabas, or Puss in Boots, and he wound up being booed off the stage. This may have been in part due to an extemporaneous gag in which he ate a prop mouse, which the audience did not like at all. In 1820, he played the wife of Baron Pomposini in Harlequin and Cinderella, or The Little Glass Slipper. At this point, the pantomime dame, or drag pantomime performance, was still fairly new. The first recorded example was in the 1806 Mother Goose at Covent Garden. 
that might not sound like it was that new because like 14 years passed between 1806 and 1820. But like these seasons ran for a long time. So there had not been that many people performing a role in drag by that point. Uh, that same year, though, Grimaldi once again left Sadler's Wells, this time after a dispute with management, and his years as a performer were just really, really affecting him physically. He started having to cut his rehearsal periods or even runs of shows short because he just wasn't well enough to continue. In May of 1821, he collapsed after a performance, and a doctor told him he was suffering from premature old age. In 1822, he wound up handing over one of his roles to his son, J.S., when he couldn't complete the run himself. Most sources cite his years of performing as the cause of his illnesses and disabilities, but it also just seems like there might have been some kind of progressive muscular or skeletal condition involved, possibly a digestive disorder as well. Grimaldi mostly retired from the stage in 1823 and started overseeing the pantomimes and clowns at Covent Garden. He occasionally did cameos on stage, and his last public performance was at Drury Lane in June of 1825. Joe and Mary Grimaldi lived mostly on charity starting in 1828, and on June 27th of that year, a benefit performance was held in Grimaldi's honor. Although he didn't do any clowning during that, he did give a speech written by journalist Thomas Hood in which he said, quote, I can no longer wear the motley. Four years ago, I jumped my last jumped, filched my last custard, and ate my last sausage. I cannot describe the pleasure I felt on once more assuming my cap and bells tonight, that dress in which I have so often been made happy in your applause. And as I stripped them off, I fancied that they seemed to cleave to me. I am not so rich a man as I was when I was basking in your favor formerly, for then I had always a fowl in one pocket and a sauce for it in the other. I thank you for the benevolence which has brought you here to assist your old and faithful servant in his premature decline. Eight and forty years have not yet passed over my head and I am sinking fast. I now stand worse on my legs than I used to do on my head, but I suppose I am paying the penalty of the course I pursued all my life, my desire and anxiety to merit your favor has excited me to more exertion than my constitution could bear. And like vaulting ambition, I have overleaped myself. Joe seemed dazed by the applause that he got after he finished this speech, and a crowd followed his coach all the way back to his home. Once he got out, he bowed to that crowd from the steps. Grimaldi's son, J.S., died on December 11, 1832, in what was described as a sudden illness. This was likely alcohol-related. Joe had really been trying to train J.S. as his theatrical successor, including having started doing father and son performances in the 18-teens, but over time, J.S. had become increasingly estranged from his parents. It really can't have been an easy position for him to have been in. Joe was really encouraging J.S. toward a career on stage, but J.S. could just never really get out of his father's shadow. Joe's wife, Mary, had a stroke not long before the death of their son. And sometime after that, she and Joe both attempted suicide, which they both survived. Mary died in 1834. Joseph Grimaldi died on May 31st, 1837. The coroner described his cause of death as died by the visitation of God. 
By this point, theatrical tastes had really started changing, and Grimaldi's style of pantomime and clowning was falling out of fashion. Some of the obituaries were dismissive or even insulting, like his death notice in Figaro read in part, quote, he certainly could cram more sausages down his throat and make uglier faces than any man alive. But as he had for so long rendered himself unfit to do anything of this kind in public, we cannot look upon his death as a national calamity. Harsh. In the last years of his life, Grimaldi had been working on an autobiography. It was mostly a collection of notes when he took it to Thomas Edgerton Wilkes to try to get help shaping it into an actual book. But Grimaldi died before Wilkes could finish the project. Wilkes sold the manuscript to publisher Richard Bentley, who asked Charles Dickens to edit it. Dickens had seen some of Grimaldi's performances when he was a child. Really, a lot of people had. He was an incredibly popular performer. Dickens' Sketches by Boz had this to say about pantomimes in general. Quote, Before we plunge headlong into this paper, let us at once confess to a fondness for pantomimes, to a gentle sympathy with clowns and pantaloons, to an unqualified admiration of harlequins and columbines, to a chaste delight in every action of their brief existence, varied and many-colored as those actions are, and inconsistent that they occasionally be with those rigid and formal rules of propriety which regulate the proceedings of meaner and less comprehensive minds. But passages that specifically mention Garibaldi are not as flattering, and Dickens wasn't impressed with the manuscript at all. After reading it, he said to Bentley, quote, I have thought the matter over and looked it over, too. It is very badly done and so redolent of twaddle that I fear I cannot take it up on any conditions. But he did take it up. Dickens rewrote Grimaldi's first-person notes as a third-person narrative that really reads a lot more like a Charles Dickens novel than any autobiography or memoir. The original notes seem to be lost at this point, so we don't really know how they compare to Dickens' finished product. Dickens also did this work very quickly, dictating it to his father, John. It was published in 1838 as Memoirs of Joseph Grimaldi with illustrations by George Cruikshank. Something this book really solidifies is the idea that Grimaldi was full of energy and made people laugh endlessly with his clowning and comedy, but that inwardly he was depressed and had a life full of tragedy. This was something that Grimaldi himself had alluded to. He liked to say, quote, I make you laugh at night, but I am grim all day. Some people had also called his father grim all day, but for somewhat different reasons. But the memoir really emphasizes this dichotomy, continually pairing Grimaldi's success with his tragedies and the joy that he brought audiences with his own depression and melancholy. So, for example, after describing how Grimaldi was badly injured when a platform fell on him on the very same day that he met his first wife, Maria Hughes, the autobiography reads, quote, It is singular enough that throughout the whole of Grimaldi's existence, which was a checkered one enough, even at those years when other children are kept in the cradle or the nursery, there always seemed some odd connection between his good and bad fortune. No great pleasure appeared to come to him unaccompanied by some accident or mischance. He mentions the fact more than once and lays great stress upon it. 
1989, a blue plaque historical marker was installed at the site where Grimaldi lived from 1818 to 1828. And his burial site at what was formerly the burial ground of St. James's is now Joseph Grimaldi Park. His grave is still there in a little fence decorated with a comedy tragedy theatrical masks. There is also a clown church service honoring Grimaldi every year, the first Sunday in February at Holy Trinity in Dalston, London. This was originally held at the church where Grimaldi was buried, but it was later moved, and that church has since been demolished. Um, So that is Joseph Grimaldi. Uh, Have a little bit of listener mail. Fantastic. Uh, This is from Samantha. Um, And it's about an episode, this has been out for a while, uh, our Packard versus Packard episode. I don't actually, I should have looked up when that came out. I did not. So Samantha says, Holly and Tracy, hello. Just wanted to give you an update on previous podcast subject, Elizabeth Packard. There was a mental health facility here in Springfield, Illinois, that was named after the doctor who abused her, Dr. McFarland. There was a strong push to rename it, and that finally happened. It is now named after Elizabeth in recognition of her being the true hero for mental health with her activism following her release. I'd also suggest maybe throwing in the 1908 Springfield race riot as maybe an impossible episode edition as it had direct ties to Lincoln and also directly led to the founding of the NAACP. I'm also attaching photos of my pets. My cat's name is Midna and my dog's name is Navi. Yes, we are Legend of Zelda fans. Ha <laughs> ha, appreciate all you and your team do, Samantha. Thank you, Samantha, for these pictures. Uh, I, as also a fan of Zelda, uh, did not need the pronunciation notes that you very helpfully included about how to say their names. Um, I, I'm not knocking the, like, I'm, I'm always happy to see the pronunciation notes, uh, but I immediately was like, midnight, yay! Um, these are so cute. Oh my goodness. A kitty cat, a black kitty cat lying in front of a, in front of a laptop. Kitties. And a, a little puppy dog. Um, thank you so much for this note. I... Uh, had I had not heard anything about this uh, renaming of this mental health facility. Um, so thank you so much. If you would like to send us a note, we're at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. We're also on social media at Missed in History. Uh, that's where you'll find our Facebook and our Pinterest and our Instagram and that thing that used to be Twitter that is now called X, I guess. You can also subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and wherever else you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now. 
Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.